this is Lauren Alston Bridges, your host, and you're listening to Oddcast Students of Humanity, the archaeologically oriented podcast for all things human. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Audrey Horning in her house. It's lovely. Um, she invited me over for a glass of wine to have a conversation about her work and to get to know her a little bit better. So thanks for talking with me. It's great to be chatting with you. <laughs> first things first, what are we drinking? We are drinking, I think, if I look at the bottle, some Old Vine Zinfandel, which is part of my uh, reacquainting myself with nice North American wines. Mm -hmm. And it tastes really good. I haven't had a Zinfandel in a while. As actually most recently, we were just talking about Pennsylvania, because you're saying that's where you're from. Uh, the summer did some work up there. They're trying to develop their, you know, wine culture, <laughs> but they're very early on. And my mom convinced me to go wine tasting. My experience of Pennsylvania wines is they tend towards incredibly sweet. You got it. You got everything was mixed with strawberries uh, or some sort of cotton candy blend. And uh, one man who obviously knew what he was doing and had been a sommelier somewhere else saw just the depression in my eyes uh, and offered me the least sweet wine they had. And I was like, thank you so much, sir. <laughs> They're up and coming. Yeah, there's taste for everyone. <laughs> right. So maybe give us a quick bio, you know, the, the twists and turns <laughs> that you've taken. I know you've kind of zipped all around. Yeah, um, this, this could take longer than you <laughs> probably have, but um, a lot of bouncing back and forth across the Atlantic, but hopefully for good reasons. So I grew up in Pennsylvania, and my grandparents had emigrated from Ireland in the 20th century, and a lot of connections with Ireland growing up, and cousins coming to uh, stay with us and so forth. So that's part of the backdrop mm -hmm. to the overall story. So grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, went to William and Mary, uh, which was the only place outside the state of Pennsylvania that my parents would acquiesce to my going to. <laughs> and my principal requirement at the time was to go somewhere outside of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky to pick William and Mary because I think it really did give me an excellent background and set me on a track that I otherwise wouldn't have gone on. So I left William and Mary, went to Penn for master's and PhD in what was then the American Civilization Program, which was a very mm -hmm. interesting mixture of anthropological approaches to American history, um, even if American Civilization is a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> right, yeah, I saw you were a double major at William & Mary yeah. with anthropology and history, yeah. and then kind of continued that yeah, in Pennsylvania. Exactly. So who did you work with in Pennsylvania? Uh, Bob Schuyler was my advisor, um, who's still taking on students there. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, he was very helpful to me, very helpful to me. So then I, um, I was meant to do, my PhD was going to be on Appalachia, but in the interim I, I needed to work, so I came back here, and Marley very kindly hired me at Colonial Williamsburg, um, and then Colonial Williamsburg got funding from the National Park Service to do five years' worth of work at Jamestown, and I was fortunate to be project archaeologist for that and somewhere along somewhere during the first year Marley turned to me and said look maybe you should do your PhD in Jamestown <laughs> make I it really, convenient yeah I really wanted to do the Appalachian stuff so I wrote mm -hmm. it on Jamestown but in the meantime the uh, park service person in charge of the Jamestown project was David Orr 
who's one of the most uh, amazing people on the planet. Um, he was a regional archaeologist for a very long time. He also um, taught at Penn and most recently taught at Temple. Um, and then he's retired, but one of life's great enthusiasts. So sitting on Marley's back porch, um, after I decided I, I would write about Jamestown for my PhD. Right, yeah. Reluctantly uh, change yeah, gears. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dave came up with funding for me to do work in Shenandoah National Park, uh, which I then got to do having finished the PhD on Jamestown or finished it while I was doing that. So that's the, that's the sort of Virginia side of things. And somewhere around when I finished the PhD was doing the Blue Ridge stuff like everybody else, you have to sort of start thinking about, well, what am I going to do now? Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, well, maybe I should look to do a postdoc before I'm too post-postdoc. Right. So the first place I looked was actually in Ireland, because a lot of my the, the PhD research on Jamestown was in a comparative perspective. Um, so I'd spent time there. Beyond the family connections, I spent time doing research. So I ended up at Queen's University of Belfast in 1998. Um, in the Institute for Irish Studies. I was there for several years and then I was in archaeology there. Uh, but then there was an advertisement for a post at William and Mary. <laughs> <laughs> so I applied for it. Yeah, even at the time thinking, oh, I'm never going to leave Northern Ireland. I love it. Right, you finally got yeah, you know, over, yeah. okay, settled. Yeah, so I applied for it and then I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, was here for three years um, and then for various and sundry reasons. Um, Ended up going back across the Atlantic. Um, not that I didn't love William and Mary, but you know, um, there are always other people in one's life who need to be looked after. So then I was at the University of Leicester in England for six years, which was also a great place with great colleagues, um, building up historical archaeology. And then a job came up at Queen's and ended up back in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. um, for five years. And now I find myself back here at Williamsburg. And back again. <laughs> so Williamsburg is clearly a thread. Well, I, I don't recommend multiple transatlantic moves <laughs> to anybody, but it, it, right. at the moment I think I sort of feel like it. I just have two homes. Mm -hmm. So. Um, well, there you go. And, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Now. It's you know, and having wherever I'm at, I have a perspective from the other place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with that perspective, I'm very curious, um, having been in a student capacity mm -hmm. and, and in multiple places across the ocean, you know, what's what's big difference between maybe like the student cultures, especially in archaeology or, you know, anthropology? Yeah, no, that's a good, because obviously on the other side of the Atlantic, archaeology is a standalone discipline and it's more, tends to be more closely related to history. Um, so at Leicester, I was in a, a school of archaeology and ancient history. At Queen's, um, I ultimately was head of a school of geography, archaeology and paleoecology, which is it's very strongly scientific. Um, so very different disciplinary cultures in all those places. Um, but I suppose at Queen's, the closest link with the anthropological side would actually be the, the human geographers, but they wouldn't see themselves as anthropological, mm -hmm. even, you know, if you're using similar contexts, it's just, you know, you very strong disciplinary identities. Um, so that's one difference. But the other big difference from perspective of PhD students is, you know, a PhD, a UK PhD is, is three years and it's all research. Um, you know, so on the plus side, 
you spend three years doing your research and then you're done. Usually it tends to take about four years, but it's three years. Right, yeah, that the ideal. The There's always the ideal yeah. number. That... Yeah, but it's, you know, um, most institutions will require, if you don't have it finished in four years, that's it. Um, so you have to, mm-hmm. one way or the other. Uh, on the downside, you've spent three to four years just doing your research and then you have to look for a job. But you haven't actually had any opportunity to do all the other things you need for a job, whether it's a you know museum job or a teaching job or whatever. So you know then you need uh, a postdoc, you know, or some kind of a placement. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, it extends things. You know, the system here maybe is too far the other way mm-hmm. when you spend those you know two to three years in classes. And then you work on the research, you know, but in that period you're getting experience, you know, teaching or internships or or whatever else. So it's, there are pluses and minuses to both systems and, and, you know, in an ideal world you might have a mixture of both, Mm -hmm. something somewhere in between. Yeah, I'd say that's the ideal. People, uh, you know, that I reconnect with after Mm -hmm. a while, they say, you're still in school? You must love it. I was like, well... I do like it in some respects, but it's it's the way the system is, I guess. So now let's talk about some stories from the field. So this is your time to regale us with some sort of interesting, surprising, awkward, or funny story, maybe from an early field experience. Now I've gone to work in a lot of places, but I was thinking I, 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 I um, nearly killed a few William & Mary students in the field. Fortunately, I can't recall their names, so mm-hmm. I will protect them. Okay, innocent. good. Anonymity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was working for Claudia Williamsburg and um, was doing work in Shandong National Park, and we had field school, as always, with the college, and um, I think the sites were, might have been Rich Neck and somewhere else, maybe in town, and because I was digging in Shandong, I, I managed to say, well, look, can I have a few students for a week or so? You know, great opportunity, come up to the mountains, you know, work in a fantastic landscape, mm-hmm. you know, look at, you know, I was looking actually at a, um, it was probably a late 18th century um, slave quarter site, mm-hmm. which is fairly unusual, or perceived to be unusual for the mountains. So I got a couple of strapping young uh, students mm-hmm. to, to come up and to do the field work, which I've been doing by myself for months, involved hiking in three or four miles, carrying equipment, doing a day's field work, and then hiking out again, which I couldn't think of anything I would rather do. They lasted a day and a half. Oh, no. And I had to drive them back to Williamsburg. It was too hard. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. You, th- you, you thought, finally, you know, I've been yeah, doing I've this by myself. Yeah. yeah, take advantage of this, yeah. this week, these eager yeah. students. You know, oh, no. So, maybe I'm a bit tough. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, some it's some people's dream to, you know, go backpacking up to their side and haul all the equipment. And mm-hmm. some people would rather just not. Not do that. <laughs> so, yeah. That was the first and only time I took any students. Actually, that's not true. I, I taught briefly at Shandong University, and I had some of my students out on weekends. Um, but I learned my lesson, and I drove them to the sites. Oh, okay. Off of a they were caught. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't make them walk in. So. <laughs> 
Right. Nowadays, health and safety regulations would prevent anyone mm. from being allowed to hike in. Yeah. With snakes, but not, you know. Right, yeah. Well, there's you know, so many venomous snakes. People ask me that a lot, walking walking in the field or going to a new, mm. another state. You know, that's always one of the first questions, especially on a trail. How many venomous snakes do you have here? Well, a lot. <laughs> but see, you know, you get used to... I have to. But they're think, scared of you. It's fine. They're scared. Yeah. <laughs> Having worked in Ireland now for a long time and doing my field work there, I'm going to have to remember... <laughs> right, I know. That you don't just charge through mm-hmm. a field without paying very close attention. Yeah, I, I try to... Uh, I go into an archaeology mindset, so, yeah. you know, if you'll see me around town... Here, uh, I had a spider in my house the other day. It was a huge spider, big black spider. Um, and of course, I was screaming and throwing things at it and, you know, generally freaking out. But if I was in the field, yeah. you know, you, you flip a switch and yeah. you turn on your field mindset. I'm going to barge through this field. I know there's spiders and ticks and snakes, but, you know, you just kind of plow forward and wear really thick socks and high boots to <laughs> fend Why? off creature attacks. Yeah, my all-time record for ticks, I think, was about 67 in one day. No! Which was Jamestown. Jamestown! <laughs> I was going to call that as, you know, Appalachia, but... Nope, nope. No, it was Jamestown. never anywhere near as bad in the mountains as it was in really? Jamestown. Really? Oh, wow. They just yeah. get ravenously yeah. hungry there. Surveying beyond Pitch and Tar Swamp. Oh my gosh. So let's talk archaeology. Um, you're a historical archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose, generally speaking, I'm mostly interested in looking at the archaeology of European expansion, particularly British expansion, 16th and 17th centuries, and of late, you know, really comparing the English stroke British experience um, and impacts in Ireland uh, with the colonization of Eastern North America. Um, but what makes that particularly interesting is is not just what was happening at the time, which involved a lot of the same people and philosophies and processes. It's the impacts today and the way it's remembered and the different kinds of legacies um, and ultimately the role that archaeology can play in contemporary conversations. So in terms of current research, something that I will continue to do because I think it's really, really important um, is, is to tie those things together and to try to demonstrate that that archaeology is actually relevant in the present. It has a role to play, and in a place like Northern Ireland, it has a very critical role to play um, in terms of readjusting how people understand how they got to where they're at, because it challenged what the evidence from the period when the English moved um, into the north of Ireland, in particular, sort of early 17th century, establishing what they termed plantations, which is not planting tobacco, it's planting people, the legacies of that today. It's very much remembered as the root of the division between contemporary communities, uh, i.e. Catholics self-identifying as heirs of the Gaelic-Irish, Protestants self-identifying as heirs of the incoming Scottish and English planters, Um, and that divide continues to be very strong in Northern Ireland. But when you look at the actual archaeology, it's not you know, one group coming in and completely displacing another. It's not wholesale removal of the Irish from the land. It's actually an interesting series of accommodations and 
daily engagements, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but it, it challenges the narratives of separation. So when people are introduced to that evidence today, it's confusing. Um, and some people don't want to know, but other people see that and then start to try to rethink where they are today and what role that might play. So to me, it's a really serious part of the peace process. Um, in similar ways to the role that archaeology is now playing, you know, somewhere like Virginia, where it's very important to Native communities in terms of trying to gain recognition for who they always knew they were, um, and the archaeology can help to demonstrate some of those continuities. Um, archaeology is also, I suppose, we, you know, we all know that it's, we all find it interesting, but also members of the public tend to find it interesting. It's, a, it's an easy way to start a conversation where you might end up talking about things that are difficult, but with the entree of whether it's discovery process or looking at something that's been buried or whatever, it's, it's easier to open up the conversation than it would be if you just you know, hit somebody over the head with a history book, which isn't very democratic. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the archaeology, the archaeological process is, I suppose, more democratic. So with all the work in Northern Ireland, um, we've tried to engage different communities, you know, including victims of troubles related violence, ex-paramilitaries, um, you know, people out of work, um, people who've left school, in actually trying to, you know, in, in the actual process of finding their pasts. And that's really potentially quite empowering for people. And they may not like what they find, but it's, <laughs> you know, it starts a mm -hmm. conversation. Right, yeah. There was, um, so you were working with an organization? Yeah, I've been um, very fortunate the last couple of years to work with um, the Cory Mila community. Cory Mila is um, basically, this, they were set up over 50 years ago to try as a, as a sort of safe place to bring people from across the community divide into a place where they, where one would feel safe um, and could begin to uh, engage. Um, and it's, it has a physical location, it's on the north coast of County Antrim, so it sits on the edge of a cliff looking across to Scotland, which is, um, is also, well one, it's beautiful, but two, it also opens up discussions about the connections between Northern Ireland and other parts of the, of the British Isles. Um, and they've always been dedicated to peace building and they'll work with, you know, with any groups. Um, there's certain rules if you, if you go to Corrymeela, because it's a residential place. So we have been doing short-term residentials and bringing in groups and, and really just taking them to different sites and introducing them to some of the things we've found, letting them decide what they think it means. Um, and it's, you know, it's really founded on a, a premise of mutual respect, um, which is, it's really good for academics to be in a situation like that because academics can get too used to being the only voice in the room, um, you know. And whereas you know, the sorts of things we've been trying to do, you know, we, we work with people from Corey Miller who are trained facilitators. They're used to working with groups that are in conflict. They're used to working with you know people with various kinds of challenges, and they know how to do that. I, I've never trained to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's. It's nice to rely on folks who know what they're doing, you know, and from their perspective, engaging with the history is not something they have the background in, 
so it's just been really nice partnerships. We also have museum people involved, so they're, you know, they work with community groups and objects and landscapes. Um, but this is another way of putting that uh, that knowledge to sort of a, a greater good. So we have a lot of discussions about you know, what we want to do, what we think is important, and it's all different because everybody's coming from a different background. That's also useful. Mm -hmm. It's not always the academics in the room, you know, who, who uh, lead or win. Uh, the arguments and that's as it should be. Yeah, so it seems like this experience would be dependent on the individuals in those groups at that time and mm -hmm. kind of how they've seen and processed the you know landscape or the materials or the, the histories that they're getting. It sounds like you don't uh, give them an, a particular interpretation. A place like Northern Ireland, everybody knows the history, or they mm -hmm. think they know the history. They know what they were raised with and what they were um, you know, told is their background and their identity and, and their connection to that place and their ownership of that place. And, and you're dealing with, you know, different narratives, but a similar love of place. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, I know what I think happened in the early 17th century based on my reading of the evidence, but I'm also, I suppose, hopefully self-reflexive enough to know that I read things that I want to see as well. I can't help but see a lot of interaction between incoming planters and, and, and Irish um, because that's what a mixture of material culture suggests to me, a mixture of architectural patterns, settlement patterns and documents that suggest that people are living in the same places and engaging. So that's, you know, evidence says something to me, but that evidence might say something different to somebody else and I kind of feel like it's it's my role to make that available to them because I've been privileged to you know, be able to find it myself, you know, and to work with it. But it's not mine. People have to decide what it means for themselves. On the flip side, the kinds of questions that, you know, people from various, you know, groups ask make me think differently. You know, there was, um, there was one guy who works with youth offenders in Belfast, and, and he came out on one of our programs which was just looking at different sites and material culture and talking through things and all of his questions about what happened in that time were really geared towards trying to understand the the, the, the law and justice um, which I hadn't you know I don't frame things that way because those aren't the questions I asked and that made me think differently you know okay I, I need to actually think about this so that I can give him an answer um, but of course he wanted that in, a, to be able to bring the groups he works with to an understanding of that history and that archaeology because their experience is very much of a justice system whether it's just or unjust you know that's what they know they know how you know what they have uh, how they've been treated in, in various systems um, you know other groups I work with a number of women's groups and the stories that they particularly um, connected with were maybe not surprising stories of women in the past stories of women who, um, you know, there's, there's one site I take people to, um, which is both, it's a late medieval Gaelic castle site, it's, a, it's also an ecclesiastical site, and then it became a plantation centre, so it was held by an English um, planter. And it's always associated with that individual, Sir Edward Doddington, but actually he died within a few years of getting control of it, and his wife had it for decades after that. And she owned it and she engaged with, um, particularly with the Irish, because the English in that place were well outnumbered. 
so it's the story of, of, of Lady Cook, she eventually becomes, that resonated with some of those groups. So, you know, the questions people ask make you think differently, and that's incredibly valuable. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm personally comfortable with messy histories, because I think they are. I think the present's messy, um, and the past was messy too, and, that, and that's fine. Um, but the issue of, you know, does anybody's version go? That's where there's sort of a, um, an issue of, I suppose, empirical honesty as a, you know, having been trained at least semi-scientifically, um, you know, I feel an ethical responsibility to the people in the past who left whatever behind and I'm trying to interpret their lives in the present that I need to be as honest to what that evidence is for their sake, um, since I've you know self-appointed myself, you know, to talk for them. At the same time, I have to respect and look after people's needs and perspectives in the present. Uh, and I think if one never, if we're not actually constantly thinking about that balance between the needs of those who are gone and the needs of people in the present, then we're not. You know, we're not doing our job. Um, there are people, you know, who, who do want an authoritative answer, and that's the easy way out. Okay, yeah, life's black and white, and this is how it was. Um, but I think that's fundamentally dishonest. It's too easy, and black and white answers always leave somebody out. Yeah. Um, so what about your comparative studies mm -hmm. with Virginia and Ireland? So what have you most recently done with that? Well, I don't think it counts as recent, but I finally <laughs> published a book, uh, you right. know, on this issue. Mm -hmm. I published a book once, but, you know, it, which was a comparative examination of, of Ireland and uh, Chesapeake and, and Albemarle. Um, but that's 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the interim, I've mostly been doing a lot of um, university administration and smaller projects. Um, I haven't been doing much digging um, which I'm looking forward to getting mm -hmm. into again. So in terms of what, on the research side of things that sort of kept me going the last few years uh, has been doing this um, work with Corey Mila and working with different communities in terms of, you know, really seriously looking at the role that archaeology can play in conflict transformation. Uh, I now feel like the, you know, another world has opened up where I can, you know, get back into some, um, you know, more committed archaeological research um, in the field and trying to decide what that will be is, it's exciting, um, but I haven't quite decided. I know I want to keep doing work in Northern Ireland and I want to get, um, integrate uh, a lot of these different groups and new folks um, back in the field uh, longer term in terms of that discovery of, of narratives. But I can't help but want to do some work in Chesapeake again. <laughs> yeah, so what was the title of the book? It was Ireland and the Virginian Sea, um, uh, Colonialism in the British Atlantic. And the Ireland and the Virginian Sea is a, is a quotation, or I've stolen it from a guy named Fines Morrison, who's a really interesting individual who travelled around a lot in the late 16th, early 17th century and wrote a lot of chronicles. So, you know, he wrote about places like um, Bohemia, for example, and, and Turkey. But he was also um, secretary to Lord Mountjoy, who led English forces in Ireland um, 
in the late 16th century. So Fines Morrison was not um, a fan of the Irish, and he wrote a lot of really, um, shall we say, biased descriptions of the Irish. But at the same time, they're also useful accounts. Um, but he once described, uh, wrote about Ireland in the Virginian Sea. And so it gives you a sense of the sort of mindset at the time, the connections between the places, because of some of the same characters trying to, they're either engaged in military efforts in Ireland or they were engaged in early colonial efforts here, decided it was too hard here and went to Ireland and tried their hand there. So there's, you know, a lot of thinking about the two places simultaneously, even though the situation in both places were very, very different. Um, and there are very simplistic comparisons made between, oh, the English did this in Ireland and they came to North America and did it. And that doesn't actually hold up against any kind of close examination. And that was one of the things I tried to get at in that book. Yeah, it's it looks very, um, I came into your office earlier, uh, in the, well, last year, it's been tail end of last year, uh, and, you know, noticed map. Um, we started talking about the maps, right, you know, yeah, what, uh, yeah. what map ended up on your, on your book, but, uh, you know, you told me you can identify an Irish book by the map on the cover. Um, and it's so visually appealing, you know, you just want to grab it off the shelf. And, yeah. um, so what map did you end up having I ended on up your using, cover? Um, a map which um, was more than likely commissioned by Ralph Lane. And Ralph Lane is better known here for his involvement with Roanoke Colony, uh, which he led very disastrously and then it was abandoned. Um, but he subsequently had a much longer career in Ireland and he tried to uh, create a plantation settlement in part of County Down, uh, which is uh, within Northern Ireland today, in the Arts Peninsula. Uh, but he commissioned an, a map in 1601, which is this, this really, it's a, it's a fantasy map. It, sh it does show the North of Ireland, it shows, you know, legitimate geography, but it also has all the wonderful serpents mm -hmm. uh, in the sea, and it also shows um, ships coming in from Scotland, uh, because in this period of time, uh, you had um, the Highland Scots entering Ireland on the side of Gaelic forces and so Lane was trying to visually present himself as the one who would repel all of that from his particular seat um, and he also compares himself on the map and in a, a document that accompanied it to John de Courcy and John de Courcy was Anglo-Norman conqueror of Ulster in the 12th century uh, so you, you get a real sense of who he thought he was who actually drew the map we don't know and it's it's still actually um, archived at the National Maritime Museum um, as a as unknown, but it's clearly was Lane's not his hand, but his his commission. So I always want that map on the on the cover of the book. Um, having written a lot about Lane, you know, being on both sides of the Atlantic, and it nearly didn't come to be because um, the designers preferred another map, which is a lovely map. Carrick Fergus in 1560, but it just happened to be on the cover of another book that came out the same year. So that was... Darn. Yep, a good way out of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Ireland in this, you know, anyone studying Ireland in the 16th and early 17th century is blessed with lots of maps because maps are tools of conquest. You have to know a place in order to take it over. So there are a lot of maps, but they, they don't always, you know, they often depict what was meant to be rather than what actually was mm -hmm. yeah maps of texts to be yeah. read in themselves yeah. you know with a critical yeah. eye to see what yeah. was happening but nonetheless another 
you know, another thread of yeah. evidence to oh, weave yeah. into yeah. all the evidence that you that you gather. Well, let's take a quick break and drink some more wine before <laughs> we tackle some other questions that are maybe of a less serious academic nature. Okay, so we're back after our wine break, a little wine and chat. I will say you brought out the ray gun uh, that I brought up. I was very, very surprised <laughs> that that appeared. It's a very hefty piece of uh, metal machinery. Um, but that was brought up because we were talking about interesting finds. And myself, I don't really have a great, you know, fantastic story of the most interesting thing. You know, I found a celt one time. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, it was, it was interesting. It's different from the historics that I normally find. Uh, Audrey had found a ray gun at a site and had you know written up something about it. And as I was uh, doing some background research, she <laughs> brought it up and um, started talking about finds. And she goes, "I know where you're going with this." She comes out and produces a ray gun for me, um, which was just amazing. Probably. The best thing that anyone's brought out to <laughs> show me in a really long time. But but now you're a ray gun enthusiast. I am. I, ray guns are really cool. Now, the, the, I mean, the original the story, the ray gun, was, it was you know, founded on a site in Shenandoah National Park. Um, and it was a site that, um, historic site, and lived in into the 1930s when the occupants were removed to make way for the park. And when they were removed, they were popularly and strategically portrayed as not living in the 20th century, which was actually a quote from the time. Mm. So to find a, you know, Buck Rogers 25th century ray gun on the property was a very useful way of, <laughs> you know, the material culture countering um, particular perceptions. But it's also just really cool. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of what people were thinking about in the 1930s and the toys they give their mm -hmm. children, and the you know the, the interesting mix of science fiction and science and space travel, and all of that making its way to the Blue Ridge, where people were not supposed to know about anything uh, or have access to anything. It's, it's quite powerful. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, so uh, and, I, and and for the sake of anybody who's actually listening to this, the ray gun I brought out is one I bought off of eBay. <laughs> All right, she's not hoarding artifacts here. The from actual her artifact is on uh, display in Shadow right. National Park. Go and have a look at it in the Bird Visitor Center at Big Meadows. Mm -hmm. Yes. No. This is <coughs> this is a purchase, not a find. Uh, don't keep your artifacts. You know. Donate them to museums. We've had really interesting enlightening discussion about your research and about the ray gun um, something completely different now so what is the last meal that you cooked this is embarrassing <laughs> because I really like to cook and I pride myself on cooking for lots of people and entertaining and introducing uh, the traditions of Thanksgiving to Northern Irish uh, Communities. Right, explaining um, all that yeah, and why and you're having so much turkey. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but no, the last meal I cooked for myself uh, last night was um, a bowl of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is my default um, mm. meal of choice when I haven't got anybody else to cook for, which happened to be the case. It's a legit food group. The, yeah. All the grad students will totally support you on that. Yeah, it's but I, I don't recommend it, you know, as part of a balanced diet. No, no, definitely not. But it is delicious and convenient. Yeah. It'll fill you for about two hours, and then you'll go yeah, looking for need some proper food. cheese and crackers or something. Yeah. yeah. Back to our more topical discussion with uh, Show Me the Scholar, which is where you tell me a little bit about who has impacted your work in some way, either directly or indirectly. So maybe someone... There is such a long list. I actually struggle to pull one person out of all the list of people who have influenced me. We were talking about David Orr for a while there. Um, and he certainly influenced me with his grand enthusiasm for every time period and everything that anybody's ever done in material culture mm -hmm. and everything that they can tell us, you know, and, and that kind of enthusiasm is is fantastic. Um, you know, even, you know, you know, your graduate student cohort will be with you one way or another, you know, some more than others throughout your career. You know, one of my very good um, graduate school uh, friends, um, Manette Church, who teaches in Colorado and has done that for a long time, um, is actually in, in Belfast right now, uh, through, you know, in part because she used to come visit us, but she's there on a fellowship now, and, and those things sort of continue and carry through, and she does different kind of work than I do, but I've learned from her, you know, it's, it's, we're not constantly learning from other people, then what's the point? <laughs> yeah. It's not a truism, but right. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's true. Mm -hmm. It's time to turn up the volume, especially for those graduate students and undergrads, people thinking of pursuing a career in archaeology, whether it's academic or CRM or museums. What advice would you offer to students and young professionals looking to advance their careers? There's something that you would have done differently or done the same. So how, how do you make it a career? Yeah, well, I was totally not instrumentalist. Um, and I, I kind of feel like opportunities opened up when I least expected them. And I never, you know, a lot of people now, well, and, and in the past too, but I think especially now there's a lot of pressure to see a particular path and follow that one. Um, and just that one. And it's really narrow. And what worries me is when I see people who do that, let's say, you know, it's somebody who decides they want to be an academic archaeologist, they want to teach at the university, and that is the only thing, you know, that will be their personal measure of success. Um, and that makes me incredibly sad because, one, there are not a million jobs out there, and two, you might actually get that job and decide this isn't actually any, you know, it's not actually what you want to be doing. Um, so the best piece of advice would be keep an open mind, believe in serendipity, or at least allow serendipity, because somebody might just turn to you and say, well, look, I know this isn't what you do, but would you be interested? And if you're too fixated on that one path, you'll say no, and that could have taken you somewhere unexpected. Um, you know, I realize I'm a bad example because I, you know, I have moved back and forth a lot, but there is a continuity there. There is a thread connecting it, but I never, ever assumed when I went through that I would be 
be where I am now or doing what I'm doing now. I just wanted to do archaeology because I thought it was interesting. I thought it was relevant, and that's all that mattered, whether I was, you know, working in CRM, working with a foundation, working for a museum, working with local groups, or working in university. You know, um, and a lot of folks, especially maybe more so students in the UK, were fixated only on an academic career. And that means a lot of expertise isn't getting out in other sectors where it could do some good, and people limit potential. It sounds like, especially for you, when you were you know, wanting to work in, in Shenandoah um, and the, you know, Jamestown opened up, and being able to switch gears and take that opportunity and not see it as a break, but more mm -hmm. a continuity of you know, developing your skills and as you went along, finding these connecting threads and not being too concerned, well, in your case in particular, in what geographic location you're in, but being able to take advantage of those opportunities and then find the continuity. And that seems to have put together some really interesting um, research interests you know, that you've been able to kind of navigate throughout your career. Yeah, just, again, I feel quite lucky to have had opportunities, but, you know, if I think about it hard-headedly, you know, I took the opportunities, and it would be easy to not if I just decided I wanted to only go down one road. Yeah, so what is something that you would advise students not to do? Just don't do it. Don't do it if you want to have, you know, longevity of career in the field. I'm not supposed to piss people off too much, but, you know, right. but it's, it's, I think it is just being flexible and it's willing to take, being willing to take risks, um, you know, and, and seize opportunities as they come along, um, you know, and, and, and don't necessarily judge other people for what choices they make. Um, and don't get too worried. I think it's, you know, being a graduate student is, is, is one of the hardest things on the planet because, you know, it's such a liminal place to be. Um, and I've been, you know, in, in, in places and situations where graduate students are very supportive of each other, which is brilliant, because then they learn and they help each other. And, you know, and other places where they're competing and then they don't learn and they don't help each other, you know, and that's, that's not fun. You know, I mean, we're not, it should it's serious, but it should be fun serious. Mm -hmm. Fun serious. Yeah. So like if, you, if you stop enjoying it, or you see it just in an instrumental way as a way, uh, you know, as, as a career in order to make money or for certain status, then then give it up and, and turn to something else. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's you know, it's not it's not a money maker, but that's not usually why any of us do it. It's about understanding people, and people like to have fun. People True. past had senses mm -hmm. of humor. <laughs> yes, based on all the you know drinking materials that we yes, recover and weird, strange folk objects yeah. that you know just people yeah. think up to entertain themselves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And ray guns. And ray guns, definitely. <laughs> um, well, our episode's coming to a close, so let us know how. People can reach you. So if you have an email, Twitter, maybe or maybe not, blog or Facebook. So how can people reach you? 
to lodge, you know, their questions or complaints or witticisms, whatever they wish to communicate with. Email's you. easiest. I don't tweet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not, not this week anyway, so mm-hmm. email's easiest. A-J-H-O-R-N at W-N dot E-D-U. Great. Thank you, Audrey, for taking time to speak with us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for episode three. And stay tuned for upcoming interviews that will include new segments and new people. This podcast is produced as a subsidiary of the College of William & Mary Anthrograd blog at anthrograd.blogs.wm.edu. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook for our hashtag Where in the World Wednesday updates. I'm your host, Lauren Alston Bridges. Dig you later.